Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Um, I'm going to bring us now to uh, our attention to the scripture. Uh, it's Ephesians chapter 6, if you turn there with me. And as you're turning there, I'm going to invite up Christine is going to come up to lead us in our scripture reading out of Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. Ephesians 6. So as she's coming up here, if you would stand with Christine and I this morning for the reading of God's word as we segue into our Bible study. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and have done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance, and supplications for all the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we we come to you this morning thankful for a lot. We've had an opportunity this week to be intentional with that, to not become more of these kind of entitled people, but that we would be genuinely thankful people, knowing that all of life is, is a gift from you, a gift of your grace, And then so much more, all that you've done for us, God. So we just enter your courts with thanksgiving today, God. We come before you. We thank you for who you are. And we ask, God, that as we have your word open, that you would open our hearts as well. That you would minister to us. That you would speak to us. That, God, you would do what only you can. Our trust and our hope is in you in this final moment we have in your word. And we pray, God, that you would get, we all pray that you would get Andrew out of the way so that you can speak to us. We do invite you to speak to us, and we pray that you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, as you just saw there from the scripture reading, we are in the book of Ephesians. We have been in the book of Ephesians, the New Testament letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, for the better part of this year. This is a six-chapter, really a a short letter that the Apostle Paul wrote with like a pastor's heart to a young church like ours. Uh, It's in modern-day Turkey is where it was in in Ephesus. Uh, And Paul is writing to this church with the heart to encourage them to remain steady and rooted in Jesus, in their positions in Christ. 
Um, every week we've been looking at a different aspect of life in Christ. We're just kind of going through the, the passages of this chapter, allow, or this book, really allowing it to lead us in our thought, in our thinking, and in our practice. You know, something happens when you open the Bible and you follow where it goes. It leads you to places you would never go on your own. It leads you to think about things that you wouldn't think about on your own. I'll tell you what, it leads you to preach and teach on things. I don't know if normally I'd be like, you know, what am I feeling getting into the holiday season? Let's talk about the devil. That sounds like a warm and merry topic. All right. So here we find ourselves, spirit-led through the book of Ephesians into this section here where the topic of our positions in Christ is warfare in Christ. Warfare in Christ. Really strong words here that come right out of the text Uh, Paul has been calling these Christians to remain in Jesus, to walk in Jesus. He's taught them about the wealth they have in Jesus. But now at the end of this book, in this final section, Paul is, is going to lead these Christians to zoom out in their perspective to recognize a broader context that all of their lives fall in and fit in. And it's the context of spiritual warfare. It's an interesting idea, a spiritual battle. We saw it there in verses 10 through 13. This is like the foundation text of the section. Paul's like, finally, and he's, you know, here he's not like doing a classic pastor thing like I've talked for a while. Here's my final last thing. Finally, okay, I'm finally done, all right? He's saying like, finally, in light of all that I've said, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So it's like a strength that we're to have that is available to us, but it doesn't originate in us. It comes to us from God. And notice this analogy he uses, put on the whole armor of God. Now, why would I do that? Notice this, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So within Paul's theology, also within Jesus's theology, was not just the idea of a supernatural personal good named God, but also this idea of a supernatural personal evil called many things in scripture, but here named the devil or the liar or the slanderer. And Paul, he says something, uh, he gives a context to life that is maybe like foreign to a lot of our postmodern secular minds to think about the idea of like spiritual things or demonic things. Like we're kind of like, that's so, you know, primitive thinking. But, but, but for Paul and for many foreign cultures even still around the world, there was this understanding that in life there's more to the story than what meets the eye. There's more going on than just the physical world. He says, for we don't wrestle. The word there is hand-to-hand combat. We don't do MMA just with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. Notice this, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. So Paul's like, I, I gotta tell you guys something. The battles you're facing in life go beyond just your battle against yourself, your battle against the person, your battle against your struggles. There is a real spiritual dimension. And in that spiritual dimension, there are real evil spiritual forces. Now we talk about C.S. Lewis's thinking that's helped us with this, that we gotta be careful when it comes to the the matters of spirituality. There's a tendency to be what C.S. Lewis calls magicians. That's people that like make too much of the devil and everything's, it's like, can you chill talking about the devil? Just like for one second, the problem is not the devil, the problem is you need to go take a nap, okay? That's the problem, eat a Snickers, you'll be better, okay? You, you You have this kind of over obsession with the spiritual world. There can be some dangers to that, to where, 
we eliminate really practical, natural remedies to things. But, but, but C.S. Lewis also talks about the other extreme, which is if you're not the magician, C.S. Lewis says, you can end up as the materialist. And the materialist, on the other hand, says there's, there's no such thing as a spiritual dimension. There's no such thing as spiritual evil. There's only sociological factors. There's only psychological factors. And though those things do interplay, what the Bible says is that, that when it comes to the problem of evil in the world, there's really a deeper dimension behind it all. And we see many examples throughout history of, of cultures that were educated, for example. You think of Nazi Germany and the evil that still was able to persist there. You have so many examples where the, 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 like you're almost at a loss in terms of natural things of how can we solve this. It's as if there's such a thing as evil. Paul would have us think that way. And that its origin is spiritual. Now, Paul has us think about this, but then he wants us to, you know, he doesn't want us to like have too low a view of these things and underestimate its power in our lives. But he also doesn't want us to elevate these spiritual powers to the same level as God or Jesus. So, so he says, he uses, the, he like racks up these big titles, right? He's like, you got these powers. You got these, watch out for them, principalities. That would be a great football team, right? Like the Houston principalities or something. Like you get the idea. It's supposed to be intimidating. The rulers of the darkness of this age, these spiritual hosts of wickedness, but notice the call, be strong. Notice the, the hope and the security. Put on the whole armor of God. That you, not might be able, but that you may be able to stand against what comes at you. You see, the, the concept here is that though you have a spiritual enemy, and though as a Christian you're on the front lines of that spiritual battle, you have in Christ what you need to be victorious. You have in God. He's given you everything you need to stand against what comes at you. Now, that can be hard to really be convinced of when we, when we look back and we have so many L's on the record. You know, you're just like, a lot of L's in this life. A lot of falling short. But, but Paul wants us to lift our eyes to see Jesus, to see his provision. And, and, you know, it's interesting. As he's calling the Christian to fight from victory that God has given in these spiritual battles... He uses this analogy of the armor of God. Paul's in, at this point, Paul's in a Roman prison. He's on, actually on house arrest, like old school house arrest, so different than what we know of today. You're not watching Netflix on house arrest in Paul's day, okay? In this house arrest, Paul's chained to a Roman guard. And you imagine as he's writing this letter, he looks at the Roman guard in his armory and he begins to use that as an illustration for how God has provided for our protection as well. So that, that's, that's what we, we have here. As he says here to, at the last verse, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against, uh, or you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, we, we said this, that the armor of God is not magical. That's not the idea here. It's not like, hey, when you left the house this morning, did you pray on all the magical pieces of the armor of God? You're like, yes, but I forgot my shield. Darn it. I left it on the counter, Okay. This is not like some invisible force field that like is, is the helmet of salvation. You know, it's not like that. This is metaphorical. Paul is using a metaphor. Uh, this is a metaphor, again, to represent the ways that God has provided for our victory against the devil's schemes. So the vision here is victory in battle. And the means of our victory is by appropriating the different provisions and defenses that God has given us. 
And we've been going through this. In verse 14, Paul says, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. So first he's like, put on the belt of truth. Gird up those loins, put on the belt of truth. It's gonna hold you together. This is the first thing we looked at. The idea that truth holds everything together. Also put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness that God gives us through his son Jesus. It's symbolized as a breastplate that guards our hearts from accusation, from temptation. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. You, you see this analogy building out here. This was last week. Paul's like, whatever you do, don't forget your shoes because your mom will take you to Kmart and make you wear light-up ones for a whole week. That's a true story of something that happened to me in middle school. I'm still getting over it. Now, Paul says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So you're seeing the analogy, right? Paul's like, look at all the things that God has provided for you to be strong. Look at all the ways that God has provided for you to stand. He's given you truth to overcome the lies. He's provided righteousness through his son to shield your heart when the accuser comes, condemning you for your sins and your flaws. He's provided not just good advice, but he's provided good news. Good advice is about, what you, is about what you do. Good news is about what someone else has done. The good news of what Christ has accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection that give us shoes to stand in and root in in the battle. And then here in verse 16, we get to this fourth piece of the armor, the shield of faith. Paul says, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able, that's a key promise there, to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. I forget what translation it is, but it's kind of baller. It says you'll be able to extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one. I like that. I don't know why. I shouldn't like that, but I do. I just do. So here we get in verse 16 to the fourth, fourth piece of the armor, that represents the fourth provision that God has made for you and I to stand against what's coming against us. And it's this symbol of, listen again, the shield of faith. I want you to think about your own life this morning. I want you to think about the content and the substance of your faith. What kind of faith do you have? And don't so much think like what you feel in your heart. I want you to think back on your life and what you've been through. What sort of faith have you displayed? This is where Paul wants us to begin to think about our, our faith. Faith, listen, is one of the things that God has provided for us in the spiritual battle. Now, that might be a foreign concept to us because a lot of us, we have like a self-centered understanding of faith. Like faith is something I have to muster. But the Bible teaches that faith is actually something that God gifts and enables in us. He has dealt each one, Romans 12, a measure of faith. It is the gift of God, this gift of faith. But, but this is an important distinction. So God gives us faith. Gives us this, this, this belief in our hearts. But it's important to point out, important to point out the object of the faith that he gives us. When we say that God gives us faith, what we really mean is that God gives us truths about himself to trust in and cling to when everything is crazy. Faith. Like it's important to make this distinction because faith has 
become sort of a more ambiguous virtue, you know what I mean? Like, recently I watched the Cinderella movie, the remake, not the original, the OG, but the remake, they're remaking everything. Cartoons are the best, the classic ones. Do you call them cartoons? Okay. Sorry, it's warm in here. <laughs> One of the, the mantras of the, of the movie is just have faith and be kind. Now, listen, I love that. That's, that's, you know, that's not a bad way to live your life. But, but even in that communication, that idea, faith is, is just kind of a virtue in and of itself. Just have faith. Well, it's like faith towards or in what? Faith in and of itself is, is sort of vague and ambiguous. Like, just have faith, belief. And, and we could maybe fill in the blanks here with a couple different directions that we send that faith. But just follow me here. We've done the same thing, listen, in the church. We've caused people to give up on their faith altogether because their faith wasn't working. And we, we've sort of like modern, there's a lot of modern American first world theology that has led people to put faith in their faith. You know what I'm saying? Like, you've got to have more faith in your faith. It's like your faith is like this force in and of itself. And Jesus taught some concepts along those lines, but they get misconstrued, and faith in and of itself becomes the end goal, like faith. So the reason why you're sick is you don't have enough faith. The reason why you're not wealthy is you don't have enough faith. The reason why you walk through that terrible loss and that tragedy is, is you didn't have enough ambiguous general faith, belief. And scripture would, would speak very, this can be complicated waters to, 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 to swim in. But scripture helps us here. I want, I want to give us a principle about faith that I think is, is helpful for us to think about what Paul is talking about. Here's the idea. It's the idea I want to submit to you that faith is really only as valuable as the object that it trusts in. Think about this. I mean, the, the idea of what Paul's saying here is not just have faith generally. He's like, you need to have faith specifically in the right things, because it's not just faith that'll save you, it's faith in the right things. Strong faith in the wrong things won't get you where you need to go. I mean, simple thought. Faith is only as valuable as the object that it trusts in. And here we are in the, the sermon where we're going to turn our attention to Tim Keller. Tim Keller and the reason for God, which is one of, like, let me just recommend to you, if you're someone that one of your biggest obstacles to faith is your own skepticism, like, I can, like, I'm a, I am, I'm like Thomas sometimes. You ever, I don't know if anybody can relate to Thomas in the Bible. He's a person who had great faith and great doubt. I believe and I doubt. And I believe and I, it's a part of the, the human experience. And C.S. Lewis, or, or um, Tim Keller, who's pretty much a modern version of C.S. Lewis, he, he wrote a great book for the person that's trying to think through the claims of the Christian faith called The Reason for God. Great book, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. And in that book, he deals with some major objections that he's received to the Christian faith while pastoring in New York City. And he has this great section of The Reason for God where he, he's talking about faith, and here's what he says, same idea. He says, back to our concept, imagine you're on a high cliff, and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you is a branch sticking out of the edge of the cliff. It's your only hope and seems more than, a, than strong enough. How can it save you? How does that branch actually save you? If you're certain the branch can support you, 
but you don't actually reach out and grab it, the true expression of your faith, you're lost. Now notice this. This is, I feel like me in so many ways. This is what Jesus called the faith of a mustard seed. If instead your mind is filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you'll be saved. Why? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. And here's the killer quote here. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Don't we sing this great song? Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. See, this is the hope of our salvation. Not how great and masterful and and strong our faith is, but it's who it's in. The strength of what we're trusting. And a lot of people had strong faith in the Titanic. Too soon? I don't think so. I mean, I made a movie about it. Okay. Think about it, though, right? A lot of money spent, a lot of work done. The question isn't so much just the strength of your faith. It will matter for your Christian life. Jesus will call us to greater faith. Don't don't hear me say, you know, uh, resorting to whatever level of faith is enough. No, Jesus wants you to grow. But at the end of the day, again, the principle of faith is only as valuable as the object it trusts in. So, in Ephesians 6 here, when Paul is saying that in the context of a spiritual battle, God has provided for us faith for our victory in the face of what's coming against us, he's saying that God has given us an object that we can hang on, trust in, and have faith in. To give us security when everything's going crazy. God's given us an object of faith. That object is himself. Isn't that awesome? It's not just that God gives us a bunch of things, like here's a list of things to believe, believe them. It's that God says, I'm at the center of what you need to believe, me. If you look at the, the very beginning of, of the fall of man, the, the main things that were being questioned were not just things that God said to believe, but it was God's character and himself. So, so what God gives us to have faith in is himself. This is what Jesus taught. Mark 11, when there's that withered tree, Jesus said, I love this simple Jesus quote. If you're like struggling to memorize scripture, here's an easy one. Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. That's the vision of faith. It's rooted in someone outside of myself that I can trust in and that is trustworthy. That's what God's provided in the battle. Jesus goes on to say in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Look at this. You believe in God. Jesus will call our faith to direct itself, not beyond God, but Christ who is God, through God to the Son. Believe also in me. So, So this is faith, right? This is what God has provided. God has provided himself for us to trust in in the midst of, notice this, the fiery darts, the flaming missiles of the evil one. Paul is writing here from the context of the Roman battlefield. And what's interesting about this section is is Paul is describing one of the forms of warfare 
that we see a lot in obviously modern movies that reflect on, on history, but it's, it's defense against the archers that would unleash thousands upon thousands of arrows upon the enemy. And these weren't just, you know, regular arrows. These weren't just like darts that you throw at the board in your garage, okay? These were flaming darts that were dipped in pitch, lit on fire. The goal was to cause as much destruction as possible. And this is, of course, becoming here metaphorical. You see the imagery for how we can sometimes be under attack from spiritual forces. And I want you to notice a couple key things here. Sometimes it's like, we've used this phrase, all hell has broken loose on our lives. It's as if somebody is shooting thousands of flaming darts at me. You ever felt that way? Like your spiritual life? Notice the key word here, the flaming darts. It's not like, oh, I got hit with a flaming dart last week. You know, like in my leg. The idea here is that there's an overwhelming onslaught from who he calls the wicked one against our lives with these flaming darts that don't exist to just penetrate and hurt you, but the goal is that like, it produces distraction long, or, or destruction long after the fact. Maybe you can look at some things in your life and you go, man, that, I, I didn't see that. That was just like a little dart, a little arrow. and Yet here I am and it's like, how did that become this? You ever felt that way? It's like there's a real enemy. It's like his goal is to keep you from thriving in who God created you to be. It's like he's strategic with schemes. It's like he somehow knows the right dart for your life. Now, this is what Paul is talking about, the context of this. And um, what I love is the confidence that he wants us to have in the midst of an experience like this. The context is these flaming darts that come at us. But the provision that God has made for us to not burn down when those darts come, to not be wounded by the tactics of the enemy, is our faith in God that functions like a shield to extinguish those darts that come at us. Really interesting. Um, now, I know you're wondering, so I'll tell you about the shield, okay? That was slight sarcasm. I hope you're wondering, okay? Two kinds of shields back then for a Roman soldier to have. Um, first was like the classic, like Captain America. <laughs> That's stupid, but it's true. Like the classic, like circular shield, maybe like two foot in circumference or something mathematical like that. And then the other was a different kind of shield. It's the Greek word actually that Paul uses here to describe our faith in the midst of the darts. And it was a kind of shield. It's actually, it's interesting. The Greek word for this shield is where we get our English word for door because that's literally what it was, like a little tiny door. Picture for like your little dog's doghouse or something or don't. But like the idea is like it's a small door, like two foot by four foot is the, is, is the imagery there. Like an oblong door is this rectangle that uh, was often covered in leather and linen, and oftentimes a soldier would, would take this little mini door that was his shield, and, and they would dip it into to water. They would soak it 
to put out the flames that would come. And it would serve as kind of like a protective wall. You've seen the movies, right? And it would like take on the darts that come their way. Another cool fun fact I learned studying Roman shields from the first century is that these shields had these little hooks on them and they could latch to one another. I should probably preach on like community and stuff there, but just like let that settle in your soul. That's cool, right? Okay, now this is what Paul has in mind when he's describing our faith. That, that through faith in God, trust in God, we have a proper defense to be protected against whatever darts come our way. That's the idea of the shield. That there's not one part of your body left vulnerable to the enemy because through faith in God, you have full coverage. You have what you need as you trust in him is the idea. As you trust in him, you have what you need to extinguish the darts that come at you. I mean, that's the vision he gives of victory. This is similar to what John says in 1 John. John says this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. I love this. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. This is similar language. We remember Jesus saying, Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And the idea there is not like the governments of the world or the people of the world, but it's the condition of the world and all that comes with it. Sometimes it's not that we feel like all hell is being unleashed on us, but we use this other phrase, like the whole world is against me. Or the whole world, like that feeling is, a, is the feeling of a fallen world with the prince of the air coming against you. And like Paul, the author of 1 John, John says that we have victory over even all the world through our faith in God. Now, with that conceptual foundation, let, let's talk about some of these darts. Let's, let's close here with some application to these things. I mean, we get it. We get the simple words that, that Paul is penning, that there's fiery darts, there's a real enemy, wants to destroy me, but through my faith in God, I have this shield because I can trust in him, and it keeps me from being destroyed. It's my victory to overcome the world. One of the interesting things I found is nobody really knows, with all the commentators I read, a lot of suggestions, but nobody really knows what Paul is talking about when he says these fiery darts. Like, there's not like a next verse which is like, the fiery darts are blah, 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 blah. Like, there's nothing. It's, it's metaphor that's kind of like, Maybe one of the first questions I'll ask in heaven when I meet Paul is like, yo, what are the, what's up? What are the fiery darts? Can you be, give, me, give me the four and one Now, anything that, that someone shares is, is really speculation. Here's what they could mean. And I think, you know, part of me wonders, like, is the reason why there's not a specific description of the fiery darts is so that we don't limit it to, like, a list of things. Maybe that's why. So that we could, and maybe the point is, like, there's so many different kind of fiery darts, there's so many ways that, it's like, the darts come from here, they come from this way. There's so many ways that the enemy can attack us. And so, I can only speak from my own personal experience as being a uh, target that has had to deflect and even be healed over some darts that have come my way. Can I suggest maybe a couple darts that you might need to overcome today in your life through your faith? Let's talk about this first one the enemy shoots. We'll call it the dart of doubt. Uh, excuse me, the dart of doubt, which is unleashed on us with the goal of warping our faith. Fiery darts, the fiery dart of, 
of doubt. We know this is one of the prime methods of Lucifer in history and in present. And that method is to cast doubt on our faith in God. To cause us to doubt. From the very beginning, we saw this with the fall of man. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field with which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Did God, is that really, did God really say that? Is, I mean, I know it's in this book here, but is that really, God, did God really say it? Notice the next question, or rather, um, notice the woman's response. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, tr- uh, of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So basically she answers this question with like, yeah, he did say that. And she added something that God didn't say. Didn't say. It says, then the serpent said to the woman, you will, you will not surely die. So then the second, he's like, if I can't get you to question whether or not God said it, let's go this route. Okay, he said it. Is it even true? Is, is what God has said, maybe you felt that way. You're like, I know God's spoken this, but is it true? Can I tr- is it reliable? And then he begins to question what God has said based on God's character. He goes, that's not true. Um, he says, you, you won't surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, God has a secret motive. He's actually not trustworthy. You, you can't, even though you might know he said it, it's not true. He's actually lying to you. And here, notice this. These are often the two ways that Satan comes with these darts of doubt. He wants us to doubt who we are to God and who God is to us. He has them begin to doubt, first of all, who God is. I don't know if you could trust who that. No, I think God just knows that you're going to threaten his seat. You're going to take his place. He's threatened by you, so, so he, you actually can't trust his motives. And also, I want you to notice the temptation. You'll be like God. It's like, you're already made in his image. So now this is also like a doubt to believe that I am who I need to be created by God. So Satan comes and he comes sowing doubts, casting doubts. Now, what I'm not speaking to here is the challenges that we face to make sense of the world as God describes it. It's been well said that doubt is, is what happens when I doubt. Is, is Doubt is what happens when like, the story that I'm living in is not lining up with what I'm experiencing. And I'm like, what, what's going on here? And I want to remind you that God is not threatened by that. In fact, God is often more comfortable with people doubting than most Christians are, than most of the church can be. Sometimes churches are the last place that you want to find yourself if you're having a crisis of faith. And that's sad because we don't see that with Thomas, do we? We see Thomas saying, I need evidence, I need more. And Jesus goes, okay, let me show you some evidence. Let me walk with you. But there is a recognition here of the enemy that's often behind doubt, seeking to warp people's view of God. That's one dart. Another dart, I know we all know what this dart is like. We're actually, we're battling the dart of difficulty right now, technically. The dart of difficulty is another one he'll shoot at us. The dart of difficulty to weaken our faith. This is another thing that scripture teaches, that Satan has some sort of unique 
power to, like this is in the Bible, that we see Satan has this like ability to inflict the people of God. Obviously the clearest case of this is the book of Job, isn't it? Like, let me make his life harder. It's like dart after dart after dart after loss, after suffering, after failure. Satan brings difficulty into our life. It's one of the fiery darts, and he wants to weaken our faith. He wants to cause us to question the goodness of God, even through the difficulties we face. I mean, his end goal with every difficulty is to distance us from this God of love. One of the greatest defenses to this is remembering that God is sovereign over every and anything that I walk through and remains good despite how bad life gets. This enables us to have a perspective like Paul. This is interesting. Paul in 2 Corinthians, he's like, Paul's gone through some stuff and he's like, lest I be exalted too high because of all that I've received. He says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Notice this phrase, a messenger of Satan, an infliction, a problem, a, a, a form of suffering was given to me through Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three, I prayed about it, I love this, three times I prayed about it. So, well, four or five times, but anyway, right? Three times I prayed about it, God, that you would take this thing from me, that it might depart from me, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, notice this, Paul goes, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, the power of Christ may rest upon me. So what an what insane outcome to difficulty. Paul's like, oh, this is a tool in the hand of God to create something in my faith that I didn't have prior and though it's from the enemy, there's nothing bad that can happen to me that God can't use and won't use, not to destroy my faith, but to develop it. What about this one, the dart of discouragement? If it's not the dart of doubt or the dart of difficulty, how many of us know what it's like to be wearied in our faith? To get discouraged. And usually this happens when I'm not getting the result I was expecting out of my investment, out of my relationship, out of my ministry. I, I expected this to happen by now, or I expected this, God, I expected that if I did this, that you were going to do this. And discouragement can set in. You know, this is one of the tactics of the enemy uh, in, in the book of Daniel. Notice how this, I was reminded about this recently, of how the, the Antichrist seeks to come against the people of God. He shall speak words against the Most High. Look at this phrase. And his goal is to wear, look at this. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, a times, and a time and a half. Now notice this. His objective under the power of the enemy, like if he can't get you to doubt and if your faith is growing even through your difficulty, his goal then is to just chip away at your faith to wear you out, to cause you to go, I'm just not going to give that much anymore because I'm not getting what I was supposed to put in. And maybe you felt that way before. I mean, I know you've felt that way before. You felt worn out spiritually. And the words of Paul are helpful here. Let us not grow weary while doing good. 
For in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. The perspective needs to be off of the outcome. It needs to be onto my assignment and onto what God has called me to do. Some of you guys have taken your hand off of the plow because God didn't respond the way you expected him to, but what he's promised you is his faithfulness, not always in the form that you expected. So continue to put your hand to the plow. Don't let the dart of discouragement keep you back. How about the dart of deviation? To wander our faith, to cause us to drift away from God. We see this in the life of Jesus when Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And he wants to tempt him, not with like, if you think of the temptations of Jesus, like you ever notice this? Minus the whole like bow down and worship the devil. That's one temptation. The other ones are like, they're seemingly not bad, right? I mean, we've all been tempted with carbs before, so don't get me wrong. Like turn these, these stones into bread. It's like, it's not like he's tempting him to, 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 to these like horrendous, you know, the modern cultural sins that we would look on at and go, whoa. What Jesus was experiencing, though, was temptation and these darts of deviation from the plan of God. These subtle compromises. These subtle, like, if I can just get you to deviate this much and then this much, eventually over time you'll be all the way over here. It's called compromise. That's why Proverbs says, don't let your foot turn to the right or the left. Stay steady on the course that comes your way. The dart of distraction. Here's another one Satan shoots our way. He seeks to water down our faith. Like if I can't prevent a follower of Jesus from following Jesus, and if I can't get them to walk away from Jesus, here's what I'll do. And the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis speaks to this a lot but I'll just get them distracted by good things by making them the main things and I'll cause them to be so focused on everything and anything other than me. And they'll become distracted like Martha with secondary stuff, good stuff, family, friends, work, my career. But it's like, it's almost like Satan's content. If he can't get you to walk away from God, he'll just keep you from mission. He'll keep you in a nominal life, doing what's comfortable, just getting by. But distraction, contrary to what Jesus taught, to seek first the kingdom of God. I'll close with this last one. I invite the band to come up for our final moment here, which is, we'll call it the dart of division that Satan brings to often wither our faith. Something that um, fractured relationships, ones that are rooted in sin and betrayal and unforgiveness especially, there's something about what those can do to our faith. Um, we, we talked about the, the picture of those shields being linked together as one. You know, there's... there's the idea, obviously, of the shield is it only protects you from one side. The whole point of relationships is that you have people watching every other part of you that's vulnerable. So the enemy often loves to create a situation where you're isolated, you're divided. He'll even use you to cause the division, to bring you out of the body, to isolate yourself. This is why Paul says in the context of relationships in Ephesians 4.27, Paul's like, don't give place to the devil. Don't give him a foothold, is what some translations say, in your relationships. Don't give him an inch. Pursue the way of Jesus, the way of forgiveness. 
the way of love, the way of grace, and the way of patience. Now, here are our marching orders in this section as we leave. You have been given more than what you need, more than what you need to overcome the darts that come your way in the person of God, in him. See, really what he's given you is himself. And he said, you can trust in me. You can look to me. You can rely on me. When doubt comes in, you can cling to me. When temptations for deviation come in, you can walk with me. But the call there is is to look to him, to put faith in him. I want to leave us with this final scripture here in Hebrews 12. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's chapter 11. He's like, look at all the people that have been witnesses to living by faith and God being worth it. And since we're surrounded by so many examples of people that have lived by faith and have a testimony because of it, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let's take that weight off and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice this here, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God. Paul's like, here's how you find victory in the battle. You put your eyes on Jesus. You see his endurance. You see how he went to the cross and he endured all of that to receive you into his arms, to forgive you of your sin, to save you, to to reconcile you to God, to recreate you to be who he made you to be in the first place. And as you look at Jesus, who you're looking at is not just your savior, but you're looking at, I love this, this is so assuring to me, In Jesus, I see both the originator and the perfecter of my faith. In other words, your faith, if you have any faith at all, it started in him. And here's the good news. If your faith journey has begun in him, it continues in him. And it ends with him. He's both the author of the story. And let me tell you, God has never authored a book he hasn't finished. He writes your story, despite how dark as it may be, What does your next season of faith look like? That's the call here. Where are some areas of your life? What are some of the darts that have been affecting you? What does it look like to look to Jesus in that and allow him to be your firm foundation in the season ahead?